Hey team, welcome to episode 12 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So today we're going to continue our discussion about an integral part of the transition process, the legal documents. Not fun, but totally necessary. In episode 11, we talked about the big picture process, kind of a 50,000 foot overview of all the documents. And today we're going to get in the weeds. Um, We're going to talk about some of the most common terms and give you some examples of things we've seen in some recent transitions and why they do and why they don't matter. So before we get into all that excitement, Mr. Charles Loretto, how are you doing today? I am doing excellent, Miss Radcliffe. I'm so excited. (laughs) What are your plans for the holidays? Oh man. What do the girls and the other little boy want for Christmas? (laughs) Little boy meaning husband. Yeah. Yeah, no, we are uh, we're full on magical Christmas is still uh, elves appear and okay, in, in yes. are trading places in the middle of the night, and Santa still as lovely and, and magical and brings exactly what they want somehow. So I'm exhausted. So that's what that means. <laughs> Whoever came up with the elf movement is uh, a genius and a millionaire and uh, some of our worst enemies at this point. <laughs> Well, that's normal stuff at the Loretto house. We've got the two Loretto kids, and we call them the bonus kids as well. So we're we're, we're at four. And so, you know, when they're all teenagers, they just want money. They want stuff. It's all expensive stuff. So they're they're, they're easier to buy for, you know, these days. So Quality versus quantity. Yes. 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 (laughs) Where mine, they could all cost, you know, I could buy her a gift that costs thousands of dollars, and it would only be one, so she needs more than one. That's right. It's it's a a rough lesson they learn. All right. All right, so let, let's get into it. So uh, we're going to flip the role a bit. Uh, normally, Christy is uh, interviewing uh, me, and today is the interview of Miss Radcliffe. Because if you know, and if you've ever worked or considered working with NDP, you'll know that when I'm on the phone, it's usually 30,000 foot level, and then we'll strategize. And as it gets into the details of the deal, that is Christy's specialty, and legal agreements is her niche. And so, uh, as she mentioned uh, from uh, the last episode, we talked about when the attorney would be engaged. We talked about the fees that the attorney would be paid, what to say, how to get them involved, essentially the big, big picture. And so we want to hit today is more of the details inside of the, what's known in the industry as the APA. So that is the acquisition purchase agreement. And so in an acquisition purchase agreement, the first thing you always want to know, and we've said this multiple times, and Christy and I will say this multiple times during lectures, is when you purchase this practice, you want to purchase what's called an asset purchase, an asset sale. You do not want to purchase what's called a stock sale. The short version I like to give is an asset sale. You will get the chance to write off. You're purchasing a million dollar practice and you give the bank or you borrow a million dollars in the bank and you give it to the seller, you'll be able to write off the million dollars that you just purchased. Unfortunately, in a stock sale, that same million dollar number you will not be able to deduct that from a tax standpoint. So you're literally going to work, making money, and then when you bring that money home after tax, you're paying back that loan in post-tax dollars. And so asset sales are good because we get to pay them back in a pre-tax situation. So we will focus our time today on the asset purchase agreement. And so what I'd like to do, Christy, if you can, Uh, Let's go over uh, some of the assets that are going to be excluded in the actual APA and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when you purchase a practice, you're purchasing all of the stuff that's in it, right? You're going to include it in that sale is going to be the dental equipment, all the supplies that are on hand, all the patient records, 
goodwill, the website, the social media, the phone numbers, the fax numbers, all of that should be included in the sale. Got it. You're not going to purchase whatever cash the seller has managed to put in a bank account. You're not going to purchase things that belong to the seller's entity because you're not buying the entity. That would be a stock sale. You're purchasing the assets and you're bringing them over into your entity. So cash, any kind of pension plan or retirement plans you're not buying, you're not buying their insurance policies, you're not buying their personal automobile they may have had. Most purchase agreements are also going to exclude kind of personal belongings, their diplomas on the wall, their pictures of their family. I'm not sure why we would want those, but those are all listed. And accounts receivable is either going to be included or excluded depending on your specific transition. And we'll get into the kind of that piece of it, but that should be listed there as well. Okay, perfect. How are things like, just out of curiosity, like the supplies on hand and just spend some time just talking about some of those specifics. Like you always talk about like the valuation of the equipment, like how's all that done? Yeah. So there's a couple ways that can be done. If there was a valuation of the practice, then they've likely included a proposed allocation and we can talk about what that means, but likely the equipment's valued based upon either the tax depreciation schedule, how old is it, what shape is it in? And there's a value assigned there. Normally for supplies, two to three months is what's kind of normal. So if all the average supply usage is $5,000 a month, then you're going to have $15,000 allocated to supplies. And that's kind of what is expected to be there in the agreements. So like a lot of times what will happen is the buyer and seller, they won't actually have a valuation done. They just kind of come up with a number. It's a 500 collection practice. Hey, the price is like 300,000. And then a lot of times just the the seller and the buyer and even sometimes the attorney will just put together and kind of fill in the blanks on right. all these numbers. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of these numbers are standard, like what's a non-compete allocated to, what supplies, and then some of them are plugs, right? If I have super old equipment, there's probably a salvageable value, but it's probably not high. And then the goodwill is normally the biggest component of that because ultimately that's kind of what you're buying okay. um, is that goodwill. So that goodwill is obviously the biggest part of the included assets Okay, there. all right, thank you. And what about just... Uh, tell me about some of the liabilities. Yes, you're not buying liabilities. Okay. Great. So if we're buying an asset sale, we're not buying liabilities, except if we listed them out and said, hey, buyer, I need you to assume this liability. Um, it's super rare for those that to happen in a practice with the exception of a few very minor things, right? And these are super immaterial, but they're important to be talked about. One of them, it's random, but the postage machine okay. and most practices, right? Pitney Bowes postage machine is going to be part of an assumed contract, meaning the seller can't cancel it and the buyer has to take it over. And in order for that to happen, it has to be in the legal agreements. So sellers, I always say, you're going to put together a list of all of the services that your practice utilizes. And once you start making that list, you're going to have more than you think you have, right? You're going to have your website maintenance, your janitorial staff, your security service, your postage machine. I have this yellow page advertising my website maintenance. You're going to have a ton of services that maybe your practice utilizes. The goal is to figure out which one of those can't be canceled. And those are the contracts that you need to list out in your purchase agreement as an assumed contract that the buyer has to take over. Okay. One of the, one of our recent clients, she had basically paid her social media website company to redesign their entire website. And so she was only a month into that agreement, but it couldn't be canceled. And so she had to include that as part of an assumed liability of the buyer. Now the buyer was going to get this great 
great benefit. He's going to get this great new website. But had he not wanted to take that on, that would have been something we would have had to negotiate. Luckily, it wasn't the case. It was listed, took it over. But it's important you do that process because if not sellers, you know, if you don't list out any assumed contracts in the purchase agreement after you close and the buyer doesn't want to take it over, you're on the hook for that, right? You can't now post-close ask the buyer to take that on if it's not in the legal agreement. So it's worth your time to come up with that list and make sure it's part of the legal agreements. Okay, awesome. So we covered the included and uh, excluded assets, talked a little bit about liabilities. This is a really common one here is the uh, how to deal with the accounts receivable and just any credits to patients. So spend some time there. You know, as you think about accounts receivable, you're thinking about like your zero to 30, 30 to 60, 60 to 90, plus 120, you know, receivables. How do you get like a value that is as a valuation analyst? Are there like certain percentages you use for those dollar amounts? Like how's all that calculated? Yep. So the value of accounts receivable is is separate from the value of the practice. So it's not included. Not included. So I'm I'm spending a million dollars for this practice and I'm going to buy the accounts receivable. I'm going to spend a million plus whatever that accounts receivable is worth. Okay. On the flip side, I can also spend a million dollars and not buy the accounts receivable. Okay. But let's say we're buying the accounts receivable. If I'm going to buy the accounts receivable, I'm going to buy it based upon a value, based upon age and the collectability. Obviously, something that's current or zero to 30 is more collectible than yes. something that's 120 days old. Most often there are average valuations. So like, let's say for anything that's zero to 30 or considered current somewhere in the 95 to 97% value, right? That's something that I feel like is pretty negotiable though. And it's dependent on every, we always kind of start at one place, but it can go up and down depending on how, if a seller can prove, Hey, my 60 day bucket is collectible and I always collect 90% of it. And here's why it's 60 because it's insurance based. Right. Then obviously that's a higher valuation. The same can be said for the 120 day bucket. Mm -hmm. I know we were talking earlier about someone who has, you know, a patient who has a payment plan and they, you know, it's a year payment plan and they've been making $150 payment a month for however long. I'll often argue that that person's balance shouldn't be considered 120 days. That person's balance should be considered zero Mm -hmm. or current because they're paying, they're actively paying and the seller can prove that Mm -hmm. because obviously the older you get, the less valuable it is. And most people don't pay for over 120. So the story here is this, uh, this week we were cleaning up a, an acquisition. We're working with the buyer and actually the seller and they have an agreement of how to value their accounts receivable, but didn't talk about how to value that 120 bucket. Mm-hmm. And so what was interesting is the zero to 90 bucket was only around 35,000, but the dollar amount between the 90 day and over was $280,000. They not cleaned up their, they not clean up their AR since 1999 to try to get now the buyer and seller to agree upon what that value is. Luckily, we, we got them to think big picture. I think we're really we do a really good job with getting them to think uh, big picture and not get caught up on something that was services that were provided before the, the even the buying doctor got there. But it is definitely a separate item uh, to look at yeah. and to negotiate. And I think sure. it's common to see that right where you've had no need to clean up your accounts receivable, you've had no need to run a credit to see how many credits you owe patients, mm-hmm. and so you run that report and you see, oh my gosh, look at that big balance! I've never cleaned it up. I've just let it roll to one twenty. I've never written them off or considered any of it bad debt. The same I often hear with 
credits, yes. right? They've never had to look at them and maybe a patient has just said, hey, let that credit stay for, so that it's here the next time I show up. And over 30 years, you run a credit report and you owe patients $70,000 and right. it's made up of a tiny, you know, not, it's not one person for $5,000. It's a ton of tiny credits. When you have a sale, you have to figure out how those credits are going to be handled. I mean, the seller is still responsible for those credits. And what I often suggest is you pick a certain time period and you say, seller, as of the close, you're going to write the buyer a check mm-hmm. for any credits that exist as of the closing date, right? So you're going to go back 12, 18, 24, however many months. Now, seller, you're still responsible for any that are older than that, but it saves a seller from maybe having to write checks for people that are 15 years old and they don't know the current address and there's no way to to know how to get the money back to those patients. Okay. So. Just to recap, there are some negotiating pieces there for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the valuation of those, it's going to vary with every transition, yeah, right? And, I and I think how well your staff collects accounts receivable makes a big impact here. You can tell practices that have really strong front office managers who are really good on collecting because their accounts receivable is really small, mm-hmm. their credits are small, and this is really an immaterial piece and there are practices where this is a really big component. Yeah, I think too that there's there are times that it makes more sense to purchase the accounts receivable. And I think like a, a general practice, for example, mm-hmm. we like purchasing accounts receivable because mm-hmm. as soon as we close as those checks that are coming in that next day, yeah. uh, we've got the cash flow. Whereas maybe is not uh, like an orthodontic practice, there's little to no, mm-hmm. call it accounts receivable, but there's a contract receivable and it's kind of the same process. You buy the practice and then tomorrow you get you get right. paid. Right. So. And I think people always ask, I always get the question of like, well, what's normal? Well, I don't think there is a normal. I mean, I had to guess 50% of our clients buy it and 50% least, yeah. don't. Yeah. But the people that don't, it's not because of any one reason. Some people like to have working capital. Like they like to just get a sum of money from the bank and know it's there. And some people would rather get a small amount of working capital and then buy the accounts receivable and have that money come in that way. So yep. you're, you're getting the money one way or the other. It's just a personal preference and, and how collectible you think and how much you trust kind of the accounts receivable you're buying. And also just look on the type of business that is. If it's an yeah. insurance-driven business and you can see that what the 30 and 60 columns look like, look at your one month of, uh, of expenses and be able to calculate that and say, okay, this, yeah. this makes sense. Okay, let's move on to the allocation of the uh, sales, sales price. So uh, let's say whatever, it's a million dollar practice. Talk about just the, the tangible and intangible values when you're doing the allocation. Of the yeah, price. we touched on this a little bit earlier. So typically tangible is going to be your equipment, your supplies, your non-compete, Usually those are the three big buckets. Okay. Your intangible are going to be your patient records and your goodwill. Yes. Okay. And so I'm interested in your your thoughts. I would say the general split between those it ranges from 70 to 80% intangible, Agreed. Agreed. 20 to 30% tangible. Agreed. Right? Now, there's a conflict of interest here for buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. We know buyers want more to be tangible because... They get to ride them off quicker. Yep. And sellers want more to be intangible because... They get a lower tax bracket. Lower tax bracket. So there's always going to be a push and a pull here of which one. I personally have a hard time getting real emotional about this piece of it. Agreed. But it's something that I feel like buyers and sellers get very emotional about. I think the sellers get more emotional about this than anything. And to me, I think when we're negotiating on our side representing a buyer... Sometimes that's the give. Like, go ahead and give them 
more on the intangible uh, piece so they have maybe better tax on that front year. It's a give for us. There's, I always say there's there's four or five gives. It's not just about the price, but it's the price. It's the asset allocation, which is the give on the tax side. It could be the amount of time you work in the practice. It could be the amount of time that they work back in the practice. It could be the rent or the building. So there's lots of different plays always in this negotiating piece. And so, uh, yeah, I would say 80% is, is kind of a, a normal and standard. Sometimes it could be higher or lower, depending on the, obviously, if it's a newer finished out office with brand new stuff, it's going to be you know, maybe a 70% number. If it's an older 30-year-old practice and, and everything's been depreciated, you know, it's probably going to be more like a 90-10 uh, ratio. So uh, it's certainly With intangible being the bigger part of that. That's right. Yeah. Yep, yep. yeah. So, I mean, and I think, to be honest, there is a bigger impact to the seller, right? I mean, the difference between your ordinary income rate and your capital gains rate for a seller is, is a big difference, right. 20% most of the time. So I do think that there's more of an impact to the seller there. And so if you can give a little bit there and help them out there, I think there's a, a little goodwill going yeah, that way. Absolutely. Another clause in the APA is the non-compete. So I'd like you to spend some time there and talk about a non-compete and just in how that is different from the Call it this the associate non-compete. So uh, yeah, and this ties in with what we were just talking about. With that, if eighty to ninety percent of your sales price is allocated to goodwill, right? right I want to protect that eighty to ninety percent of what I just purchased, and so I do that by having a non-compete in my legal agreements. It differs from an associate non-compete because an associate non-compete is simply trying to protect what I'm building and what I have, right? right. No one, associate's not paying me to come work for me. Where in a purchase and sale, I as a buyer am paying you a million, 700, 400, whatever that number is, it's a right. lot of money. And I'm buying your patient records and I'm buying your goodwill. And so you are giving me this non-compete to protect my assets that I've just purchased for a period of time. Right. And you should be willing to say I'm not going to practice within X mileage for X amount of time if I'm going to cut you a check at the end of the day. And so this, to me, buyers, you'll see this every once in a while. The sellers I love is the seller that basically is saying, look, I am 60-something years old. He or she, if it's 10 years, 15-year non-compete, 20 miles, I don't care. I am done with dentistry. That's who we want our seller to be. Mm -hmm. The seller that sometimes Christy and I will be nervous about is the seller that's trying to negotiate the three-year non-compete down to two or the five-year non-compete down to three or the uh, the seven-mile non-compete radius to the uh, to the four-mile. It's like, what are we doing? You're selling something that's a million dollars. We got full asking price here, seller, and now you're messing around with a non-compete. You're going to scare our buyer, you know, away. Yeah. So, and sometimes they just play the what-if game. Like, oh, well, what if I needed to do this? Well, I mean, like, there's a lot of hypotheticals we can throw yes. out here, but one one for sure that I can throw out there is if you do negotiate and try to negotiate from five miles to four miles, you're buyer will think you're planning on setting up shop within yes. that mile that we're trying to negotiate, even if that's not your intent. Right. So, I mean, I think it's, you're really raising some red flags Definitely. that are totally unnecessary. I think at that point in the game and banks care about these too. Yes. So, I mean, a bank may say a buyer may be fine with five miles and a bank may say, mm -mm, I'm lending you some money and I need it to be a minimum of 10 miles. That's right. And of course, if we're working for you, we'll, we'll raise that red flag for you as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to uh, to retreatment. So this uh, seems like such a small little thing. 
Tell me what retreatment is and why it gets underneath your skin. Pure torture. <laughs> now, now retreatment is one of those necessary pieces that is there is no standard, and okay. I think that's why it's hard. And, and when I say no standard, I mean there's a lot of different components here that can be negotiated, and that's great because you can make it specific to what you want and what your practice is and what your patient base is. But basically what retreatment is, is if I buy a practice and a patient comes back and says, this went wrong with this treatment or this went wrong with this production or this failed, right? I just purchased a practice and that's a liability of the seller that now I, as the new owner, am responsible to fix. And I'm not going to charge the patient, right? Because they already paid for it once. And so the legal documents spell out how do we deal with those patients who need redo work? And we call it retreatment. That sounds like we should call that beat down because that just sounds like a beat down clause. So, <laughs> so they did a procedure. It was like an $80 procedure. And what happens if this procedure goes bad? And you know, oh my gosh, you yes. have to deal with this. Yes. And so I totally get it, right? This can be a very expensive thing. And if you're not sure and you've never, you don't have a relationship with a seller, you don't really know the quality maybe of their work. Right. And then on the flip side, if I'm a seller, I don't want to be called in every time a filling is wrong or maybe a patient didn't follow a treatment plan and so therefore things didn't turn out as they should have. So there's there's a little bit of give and take here. Typically, it's going to cover a certain amount of time after closing. Okay. So six months, 12 months, nine months, 18 months. It's going to depend on the type of practice, what you're doing. I would say 12 is probably the most common, but there are definitely arguments for shortening and lengthening that period. The main purpose, again, I said, is to protect the buyer and to make them whole. So you don't want them out any expense Mm -hmm. and you want them to be compensated if they're the ones doing the retreatment. Okay. And so what that usually means is let's say patient comes in and says something is wrong then buyer has to go to the seller and say, hey, seller, patient John came back in. This is wrong. Seller, buyer, look at whatever they need to look at, uh, you know, x-rays, charts to make sure, hey, we agree that this is done incorrectly. And then either the purchaser does the work and gets paid a percentage of his fee schedule and gets compensated for any labs or major supplies, or the seller can do the work and pays for the lab bill. So, Again, a lot of little pieces and moving parts, what percentage, what types of expenses, how long, um, a lot to be negotiated here. And this is why it's probably my least favorite part of these agreements is because this is likely to never happen, Right, right? right? But if it does happen... We want something that spells out what do we do? Because if it's not spelled out or it doesn't have to be mutually agreed, I've worked with clients who have had bad experiences where they've had a lot of faulty work come back and their agreement was poorly worded or sellers who there wasn't the mutually agreeable language. And so a buyer has come to us and say, oh, like this wasn't in my agreements and, and what happens now? It's important to pay attention to that little language, even though it feels like maybe it's not as important in the moment. Do you ever put dollar amounts on these? Like just say, here's a set yeah. amount. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. And that oftentimes like a seller would be like, I don't want to be nickel and dimed here. Right. Like, can we just say anything over 500? I'll take, you know, I'll do anything under 500 purchase is going to be a responsible for, or maybe kind of the opposite extreme saying, I'm going to cap it at a certain dollar amount over a 12 month period. And they put an escrow account or something. That sounds fair. Yeah. What about prepaid patients? So very common to see an orthodontics, very common to Mm -hmm. see in like a really high end fee for service practice or a perio practice, or maybe at the year end where a patient comes in and, and they, they put 
uh, I don't know, $10,000, you know, down payment for their appointment uh, that's going to be in a month or a um, $2,000 down payment on an orthodontic case that hasn't actually been started. So how's all that work? Yeah. So again, we want to make the buyer whole. And so if the seller has prepaid, especially fully prepaid patients for procedures that haven't been performed, that post-close buyer is going to have to perform those, then the buyer needs to be paid for those. And so generally what we'll say is any fully prepaid patients as of the close, the seller is going to write a check to the buyer for any fully prepaid patients. Now it gets a little messy if the patient's only partially prepaid, or maybe they've already started work, and right. so we're we're now we're halfway through. Oftentimes, I'll just have sellers provide a list and say, "Okay, here's all the patients. Here's what they've prepaid. Here's what's been done, and here's what's left." Okay, right? If if it's just that a crown needs to be seated, then that patient's pretty much done, right? Okay. But if we're at the beginning stage, well, then let's prorate that prepaid amount somehow based on the production. Okay. Um, and again, this one's some one that's everything's a little bit different. Or though, again, I mean, like you said, that's probably the most important one because you can have a hefty number. Yeah, but those are sometimes like on the ortho, those are the ones that are prepaid for full treatment. Correct. Right? So not, yeah, just, yeah. That, not just that deposit. No, no, but no. But sometimes like a Medicaid, if it's a Medicaid state or if it's simply a maybe a $6,000 case and someone says, hey, I'll do a cash deal for 5200 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to be really, really careful uh, as a buyer to know what you're buying and be able to ask these types yeah, of questions. Yeah, fully prepaid is really where we get concerned, right? Yeah. Like there's always some level, especially in ortho, some level of prepayment. I've paid for my monthly visit and I had, haven't been there yet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always some level. It's really the fully prepaid patients we want to make sure that we understand. Is that one on our checklist of 90 points of checklist things to think about? I think before? it might be. Okay, good. <laughs> if we only had a checklist that told the buyers what to do, it would be so cool. Can you put that to our list? Uh, yeah, I'll work on that. Thank you. It'll be listed for, tomorrow. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Um, this is another one. This I love it when Christy comes to my office and she's, you're not going to believe what I'm doing. But uh, what about <laughs> The prorated, no, she would never do that. Uh, what about just like some of the prorated expenses? So, like, uh, we close, it's December 1st, and then, but what about the, the water bill that's going to happen between December 1st and the 15th and the electric bill that I still haven't gotten? There's like this amount. And do people really get caught up on the one tenth of the hundred dollar bill? I wish there's a webcam <laughs> so you could see how big my eyes are at the moment. Yes. <laughs> And I get it. Like, there's a lot going on, and we don't think about these, like, operational things until after. But I cannot think of one time and one client that I have not got this question about. Okay. So all expenses are prorated. And you kind of think of it as, like, a timeline and a time continuum. And closing day is, like, a mark on it. Anything that happens before is seller. Anything that happens after is purchaser. So, again, we close on December 1st, and our water bill is November 15th through through December 15th. When the buyer gets that bill on December 15th, half of the responsibility is the seller and half of the responsibility is the buyer. I would highly recommend for anyone going through this process to create a simple Excel sheet, a yellow pad of paper, a Word doc, whatever 
tracking method you want and just keep track of those, right? I got a water bill here. It was this dollar amount. You owe 50%. I owe 50%. And a month after you close, do reconciliation because both parties are going to have these prorated expenses and prorated fees that they're going to have to even up. And then there's going to be a wash and someone's going to owe some money. Don't write a check for every bill that comes in. I love this because, you know, Christy will be working with maybe the seller and they've got X millions of dollars. Just help transition their million dollar practice or life's work and the buyers, you know, buying it. And we're literally helping the seller with the spreadsheet of they owe 31% of the water bill, 59% of the electric bill, you know, yeah. 30 and 60 days after. So that is the love uh, that she has going into this and process. I think, and I think that's one of the things where it's like most people don't like, they feel like once we get to closing, like all yeah. oh, the hard parts over. But I hear from a lot of sellers and buyers that like, that's a hard transition. Like for a month or two, it's a little crazy just kind of figuring out and getting everyone yeah. up to speed and getting things transferred over. But, you know, kind of that's obviously what we're here for. So I don't, I don't mind it, even though it's crazy. Well, I don't like this role of interviewing you. You're so much better <laughs> on the other side. You, you, you I have to, you like uh, when I, I, tra- I travel around, you know, and um, you haven't been on the road as much uh, lately, but just here recently, people will just come up and they just constantly say, oh, I love your podcast. You know, they don't say anything about me. They just say, I love your podcast. Chrissy is great. Chrissy's so <laughs> soothing. It's just like, are you kidding me? Like, how about a little love for me? So I need to change my job profession. Yeah. <laughs> no, everyone does love the Christy. <laughs> All right. So on that note, can you give us a good summary of what we talked about today? I can, but we missed one thing that I think is important. What? What? What about work back? Oh, I don't. I forgot about work back. You're right. It's right on the list. God, I'm fired. I'm fired. Sorry. Uh, okay, so this is a big deal, and um, so obviously, as a buyer, you're going to want the seller to work back to help you transition the goodwill, the big piece that we've allocated, the non-competes there for this. But how that seller is going to work back for you is going to vary dramatically by transition and by size of your practice. It can either be a completely separate associate agreement and. Uh, independent contractor employee agreement, or most often it's a section within the purchase agreement that kind of goes over how is that seller going to work back for you? It can be, they're going to work back clinically, or it can be, maybe you don't need them clinically and you just need them to come in and shake hands and check hygiene and help you transition the business. And maybe that's only for two weeks and it's part of the purchase price, or maybe you want them there for three to six months and you want to pay them a per diem to come in one or two days a week and shake hands. And if they're willing to do that, that's something that you can do. Yeah. A comment there. Um, thank you for your question and your answer <laughs> is we see a lot of times too, that it's, it's, it's a really cool kind of design is we're working with the numbers itself. We're looking at this million-dollar practice. We'll look at the doctor production. We'll look at hygiene. Look at the profitability. We'll look at the goals that we have for the cash flow for the new buyer. We'll look at the number of days that we have that we want to have the seller work back and even put production goals by day and just put that piece in there. So that way on these legal docs with the work back, we may say that we want to have the seller to work back. 40 days or 50 days or 60 days and even give production goals of $5,000 a day. So they hit their $200,000 collection, you know, doctor number and then at 30, 
35% that they're making $70,000. And so we're, we really want to put that together in our analysis and be able to work with both buyer and seller on that so they can hit their goals you know, a year from now after, after we're closed. Yeah. And I think some people want something certain, right. And bigger practices, you want to know the seller's going to be there to cover clinically. And then I think in certain practices, maybe buyer, you can do every, all the work, but you still kind of want them there as more of a security and transition. And so you want it to be more flexible. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of have to look at it from both sides. Like, so I've had buyers come in and say, I for sure want the seller to be there three days a week for six months. Right. And then two months into it, they're like, man, I really wish I would have like <laughs> staggered this down. Right. Or seller thinks I for sure want to work four days a week right. I and I want to so do, done. yeah. And then two months into it, they're like, I don't really like having a boss. Like right. I right. still, I love the person, but I kind of just want to slow down. And so we really advocate for if possible, and if the production doesn't necessitate the seller helping being flexible in, in your verbiage and yes. you know, a lot of mutual agreement or right, right. staggering down the days, you know, you can always change your mind later down the road rather than kind of lock yourselves in there. So, and obviously if they're going to do any clinical work, you need to pay them appropriately kind of with a non-compete associate and owner working back. They're not the same, right? right. You're going to pay an owner more than you would pay an associate off the street to work back in the practice. They have the relationships, they have the experience. And so you kind of can't compare what you would pay an associate to what you pay an owner working back. Those are not the same things. And yeah, so just, just do not get hung up on that buyer. Yeah. Like if you give them 35% or 38% and you, you got 30, do not get caught up on mm -hmm. 8% of $200,000, which is 16 grand. Just do Especially not. Especially if it's only for like six to nine months. Exactly. I mean, the, the, that's exactly. not big dollar amount. So exactly. that's actually a kind of a good segue into kind of a summary. So obviously these are terms and things that we negotiate as part of the transition. Mm -hmm. These are important things in your legal agreements. And when I get legal agreements who have been drafted by non-dental specific attorneys, none of this stuff's in there, right. right? There's a lot of language and they're multiple pages long, but there are big pieces of these that are missing. There are a lot of components to legal agreements that are not these terms. Mm -hmm. Indemnification, liability, what are the damages for violating some of these things? Really important legal language that attorneys are love, great at. They love to look at they it. They love it. And they'll change periods and vows to these and, and it's wonderful and we love <laughs> them, right? But that's their world. Our world and our role in helping with these legal documents is to make sure that these terms are, as we negotiated them, help getting to a place that's fair and reasonable and making sure the legal agreements that the attorneys draft result in something that looks similar to what we agreed to. But attorneys are always going to be part of it. And we always suggest that you, you know, like we said in part one, we always suggest you engage those, those dental specific attorneys and talk about fees up front because, because these things need to be part of your agreement for your benefit, for both parties benefit long-term. So, and then in that, I thought it would be helpful to kind of quiz our attorneys that we work with and say, you know, what's the biggest mistake that buyers make? And one of them I thought was funny because one of them was not wanting to pay for an attorney, right? <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Which is true, but I understand where they're coming from, right? Because we hear this a lot, I, you know they're buying their first practice. They don't have a ton of money maybe saved up. Um, and so they don't want to invest in the attorney, but I think these agreements are so important that it's worth, it feels like a big investment, but if you're smart about who you choose, 
negotiate fees up front, understand the time that it's going to take them to review the agreements, then you want them to protect you, right? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if you're going to spend four, six, seven million, two million dollars on a practice, the price you're going to pay is oftentimes reasonable. And the second thing they said, which we've talked about several times here, is don't get wrapped up in the small details, like the thirty. If am I going to pay them 35 or 34? Is this allocation 67% intangible or 70% right. intangible? Pull back a little bit. Let's try not to be emotional and about this. I think one of the things. things that the attorneys that we work with are so thankful is we're just giving them all these details already laid out. You know, yeah. we're, we're laying out all the asset allocation, the price, the work back agreement, the retreatment clause. We're trying to figure all this out between the buyer and seller so that when they get it, that they can just simply put the documents together and they're not billing at three hundred and fifty or three hundred and seventy five dollars an hour and just running up, you know, tens of yeah. thousands of dollars of bills. Um, they get it. It's simple for them. They work on flat fees. They knock it out, and then we, we move on. Yeah, I actually had a client recently who decided to use their own attorney. Uh-huh. And $20,000 later, they're like, yeah, well, that was a lesson learned. I should have listened to you. <laughs> we I just try- smile. I, I just smile. <laughs> I try to take a book from my mom and not say I told you so, as she should to me so often. Um, so, okay, fun stuff, right? Great job today. Uh, so these are important. I want to kind of finish with a summary sentence that in in the best case of scenarios, these documents you put in a drawer and you never look at them again. But most often you're going to look at these whenever something goes wrong or a question comes up. And even if it's not contentious, even if you're still friendly with the seller, like these are going to provide you like factual, unemotional answers to questions you have. And we look at these things every day. So we're pretty familiar with them and, and happy to walk you through those. And that's what we do for our clients. But we really do think this is an important component. And I hope that you guys found this super valuable today. So that's all we have for now and for this year. Last episode of the year. Last episode. We're going to take a break for the holidays and we'll be setting up some great material for the new year. So if you have any ideas or topics you want us to cover or questions you want us to address, email us. I'll put the link in the description for the podcast. Remember to check us out on the website, subscribe to Transition Talk on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, like us on Facebook. Have a great week and rest of 2018. And until next time. Awesome. Thank you, Christy. Thank you.